Uh, please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, if you didn't pick up the joke from earlier that uh, Greg made about my son Sam, if you, did, if you weren't here a few weeks ago, uh, that song that we sang earlier, Sam heard that song on the radio and he was thinking about it and he goes, well, okay, so I guess Jesus is the king of everything, but at Burger King, Burger King is king. He's like, well, slight misunderstanding. Uh, so I want to share with you some other children's misunderstandings on history. Uh, one child wrote, he said, David was a Hebrew king in the Old Testament who was skilled at playing the lyre. Solomon, his son, had 500 wives and 500 porcupines. That was good. <laughs> Another child wrote, Socrates died from an overdose of wedlock. Which, fair enough. Another one wrote, the Romans were called Romans because they never stayed in one place very long. Which makes sense. Another child wrote, the government of England was a limited mockery. Henry VIII found walking difficult because he had an abyss on his knee, which, knowing Henry VIII, that's probably true too. All right, uh, one other child wrote, and this is my favorite, a great writer was John Milton. He wrote Paradise Lost. Then when his wife passed, he wrote Paradise Regained. Okay, some of the wives are looking at me like, that's not funny. No, that's funny. Okay, I don't care who you are, that's funny. All right, I think it is cute when kids get stuff wrong, right? I all the time am amazed by the stuff that goes through my kids' heads that made sense in their head, but then it's, it's not correct and it's always comical. Uh, it is not so cute, however, when we as adults in the church, especially adults who've been raised in church all of our lives, don't know our basic biblical history and get stuff like that wrong. Uh, my favorite example of this, I think I've shared this with you before, but once I was teaching an adult Bible class, this was at the church in Texas, so I'm not making fun of any of you, um, but I was talking about the exile, and I said, okay, so the Israelites went off into captivity. Where did they go? And in a room full of adults, who most of whom had been in church their entire lives, none of them could tell me where the Israelites went off into exile. Finally, one of the older gentlemen in the room said, I don't know, a cave? Babylon was the answer we were looking for, by the way. Yeah. Um, and I don't tell that story to make anyone feel bad, because I know some of you are sitting here this morning thinking, I didn't know the answer to that question either. Right? I know many of you are new to faith. Uh, many of you did not grow up hearing Bible stories every night. Or even if you did, uh, you grew up in a church that focused so much on the New Testament, we didn't focus on the Old Testament at all, and so you may know the letters of Paul pretty well, uh, but you're unfamiliar with some of the Old Testament stories. All right, I tell you all of this because in our text this morning in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is giving us a history lesson. Uh, he starts this text with a paragraph that if you're not extremely familiar with your Old Testament, a lot of the stuff that Paul says in this isn't going to make sense at all. And Paul is just assuming that we all know the stories that he's referring to, uh, just with very small references in our text today. Uh, and even if you do know your Bible really well, you may still be scratching your head wondering what all Paul's talking about here in paragraph 1 of chapter 10. So let's look at this. Paul writes, for I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food 
and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Again, if you're confused at this point, you're in really good company. All right, let's break this down. First thing I want you to notice is that Paul calls the Israelites our ancestors, which is an odd phrase uh, because Paul is writing to a Roman colony. This is a church full of Gentiles. They're not Jewish at all. And yet when he's talking about all of these Jews who lived so long ago, he talks about them as our ancestors. Paul does this a lot of times in his letters. He is very intentional to point out that if you are a member of the church, Okay, if you are one of the baptized believers gathered together as the church, then even if you are like me and you don't have a drop of Jewish blood in you at all, we think about those people as our ancestors. Okay, when we're reading about King David or Moses or Isaiah the prophet, whatever it is, those are our people. This is our story. We have been grafted in to this family of God that has existed for a really long time, and we are a continuation of that story that God started a long time ago. That all makes sense? This is our people. These are our ancestors. Okay, so what does he say about these ancestors of ours? Uh, he says they were all baptized into Moses, which is an odd phrase. Okay, but remember the foundational story for how our ancestors became the people of God, right? We spent months on this, uh, mostly earlier in the year, and some of it even into last year, going through the story of Exodus. Okay, this is book number two in your Bible, and it's all the story of how our ancestors came out of slavery. We were all in slavery in Egypt under King Pharaoh, and yet God, with his mighty power through these plagues, brought us out of slavery and took us on a journey to the Promised Land. And the culminating moment of how that happened is we cross through the Red Sea. Okay, Charlton Heston does it really well. I think Disney does it really well. Okay, there's several movies where you can see us going through the sea okay, on our way to the promised land. And Paul talks about that as a baptism. Okay, we went through water to become the people of God. All right, now, the New Testament goes to great lengths to compare Moses the Messiah who led the people out of Egypt, to Jesus, the Messiah who leads us out of slavery. Okay? Just like they were baptized into the people of God, so were we. That all make sense? Okay, so what do we do with this? Right? I want all of us to remember that the New Testament has an extremely high view of baptism. And if you're new to this, if you're not familiar with what baptism is, it is a religious ceremony where we physically put someone under the water and bring them back out again. Um, it's a spiritual dunking, to put it bluntly. Okay? And to Paul and to the early Christians, this was not just a symbol. Okay? This is not just an outward sign or an optional religious ceremony. Okay? He talks about baptism as being the initiation into a life of freedom following the Messiah to the promised land. Right, so, catch Paul's point here. Just like our ancestors, the Israelites, were baptized people, so are you in the church a baptized people. That's his point. All right, next. Paul says, uh, they ate spiritual food and drank spiritual drink. Right, and then he says the really weird thing about the rock being Christ. Okay, but what Paul's actually doing is he's playing on a story that the rabbis told that all of them would know that none of us know, so it sounds really odd to us. And I can tell you that story later if you're really interested in it. 
Okay, but if you remember the story in the, in the book of Exodus, uh, the people were wandering around in the desert, and they got hungry. And the way that they got food wandering around in the desert is that God miraculously provided it to them. They would wake up in the morning, and there is this manna, this bread that God just gave to them. Okay, then when they got thirsty, God provided them with water miraculously. In two different stories, Moses struck a rock, and that rock produced a string of water that gave all of the people life. Now, if you go back and you read these stories in Exodus, you note that they saw this as so much more than just getting nutrition so they could live. Okay, they looked at this food and this drink as a way they were literally eating and drinking with God. God was with them on this journey. Okay, and they had this special spiritually provided meal that they were sharing with the divine in their presence. Okay? So, for the Israelites, baptism and communion are not just physical experiences. They are spiritual sacraments through which we connect to God. Okay, and so catch Paul's point. He's saying, these people long ago, our ancestors, they were all baptized Okay, and they all got to eat with God regularly, right? With the implication being, okay, and you Corinthians, you Christians, you've all been baptized, and you all eat and drink with God on a weekly basis, right? We just read a passage about that. Brother David read that to us, right? Okay, we're baptized, and we take communion with God every week. All right, so, what's the point? Here's number one if you're taking notes. The Israelites were the people of God, just as we in the church are today. Okay? You don't want to be in slavery in Egypt. You don't want to be in slavery in your sins today. We all need a Messiah, a Savior, who will take us out of slavery and take us to the promised land. You need to make sure you are among those who are in the Messiah Jesus. You need to make sure that you're one of the ones who has been baptized, passed through the water to put on Jesus, Okay, the biggest marks that Paul lists for God's people both then and now is that we are those who have been baptized and who regularly eat with God. So far, so good? Okay, all of this is setting us up for the real point that Paul wants to make. Because in spite of all of these connections that we have to God, in spite of being baptized, in spite of sharing in this communion feast with God Almighty, notice next, verse 5. He says, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, these things occurred as examples to us to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. I remember once when I was in high school, uh, they brought in a police officer to come and address our entire class. And he showed us a bunch of slides. Uh, again, this was back in the day with slideshows. And he showed us slide after slide of teenage drivers in car accidents. He showed us mangled wrecks from teenagers in various 
car accidents. I specifically remember one car. It was so mangled you couldn't tell what kind of car it was. And the officer told us that that car had been in that accident because the teenage driver had been distracted while trying to change the CD in the CD player of the car. Okay? And that's what happened. Now, why would that officer come into our school and show us all those pictures and tell us those stories? Because okay, they didn't want us doing the same things, right? Now, I don't know how effective that was for everyone else, but I know that the next time I was in a car and needed to change a CD, I remembered that picture. Right? And I know that 20 years later, as I'm standing here in front of you, I remember that picture about distracted driving. See where I'm going? Okay. Paul says, we should remember how the baptized into the Savior, communion-sharing Israelites never made it to the promised land. Okay, they had every advantage. They had God going with them. They had the Ark of the Covenant. They'd seen amazing things. They had witnessed all these miracles in Egypt. They'd walked through the sea on dry ground. And in spite of all of that, they never made it to the promised land. Why not? Okay, because even though they were God's loved covenant children, they never lived like it. And Paul says, you see all their bodies scattered in the wilderness? Okay, hold that picture in your mind, as then you think, what does it mean for us to be the people of God who have been baptized and who take communion every week? Do we want to end up like them? Absolutely not. Remember their story as a warning. Okay, now, Paul is not saying that we need to live in fear. Right? I'm not interested in a Christianity that ends on my deathbed saying, you know, I hope I did enough. I hope I was good enough to earn my way into heaven. Okay, Paul is extremely insistent we are saved through grace and mercy, and we will never be good enough. Okay? If you're counting on being good enough to get there someday, on keeping enough of the Bible right, you're not going to heaven. Okay? That's not the point. Right? Scripture teaches several places we are not to have a spirit of fear. Okay? So if that's true, then what is this teaching? Okay, I think Paul is teaching, this is number two if you're taking notes, and this is if you're going to pay attention to one thing I say this morning, let it be this. Okay, life in the kingdom isn't something that we can take for granted. Life in the kingdom of God Almighty, the privilege that we have of even gathering here as a body of believers this morning, life as God's loved children is not something we can just take for granted. A few weeks ago, I talked to you about how someday I will die, okay? and whenever I stand before my God, uh, God is not going to be impressed with how many degrees I have. Uh, God's not going to be impressed by how many books I've read or how brilliant I think I am. I know all of you are impressed with all of those things, but God won't be. Okay, our vast knowledge isn't impressive to God. Okay, that was the point Paul made earlier. Okay, now, in chapter 10, Paul makes the point that God also isn't going to be impressed with my saying, well, you know what, Lord? I was baptized at 12 years old, and I've got a really good attendance record since then. I've taken communion almost every Sunday since I've been alive, Lord. And so because of my baptism and communion, because I've been part of the group, now I'm good. Aren't you impressed, Lord? Okay, is that going to be impressive to God? No. Okay, God isn't that impressed with my knowledge. Uh, he's also not impressed that I went through ceremonies. Okay, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians to a group of Christians who were still engaged in prostitution. They were visiting temples with idols. Uh, they were doing a whole bunch of other things that they shouldn't be doing. And they thought, you know what? It doesn't really matter what we do. Okay, we have baptism and communion, and so that means we can live however we want to, and God's going to be happy because we did the rituals. And Paul says, okay, Think about your ancestors, the Israelites. They had the rituals too. How well did that work out for them? 
Okay, I think the point for us is not, is that we can't say, okay, well, I'm a child of the king, and so it doesn't matter what I do. No, as a child of the king, I'm called to live like the king. Okay, we can't take our kingdom life for granted. Fair enough? Okay, so how do we do this? Uh, I know that I'm supposed to live like Jesus, right? I know that my morality matters. Uh, I also know that I am saved by grace, that I will never be a perfect Christian. Uh, I can't even pretend to be a perfect Christian. Okay, so how do I handle temptation And how do I avoid the fate of the ancient Israelites? How do I not just rest on the fact that, okay, now I'm in, now I'm taking my communion every week, so everything's going to be just fine. I can just relax and do what I want to. How do I avoid temptation? Notice verse 13. It says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Okay, so here's really the, the harder application point for us this morning, and that is how do we handle temptation? Okay, so we know that we're supposed to be a moral people. We know that we're supposed to do better than the Israelites did in the Old Testament. How do we do that? How do we become more like Jesus? Paul says a couple of things in this text right here, verse 13. And the first thing is, he says, I need to have confidence that other Christians have already conquered the same things that I'm struggling with. Does that make sense? Okay, I think about when I was a teenager. Uh, I was probably 13 at the time this story takes place. That's very long ago. Uh, but when I was 13 years old, I remember going on a youth group field trip or a youth group trip to Six Flags over Texas. And so our whole youth group was going to Six Flags. And at 13 years old, I was terrified of big roller coasters. There's zero reason for anyone to get on a large roller coaster. Um, God didn't intend for us to go that fast without more things holding us still, right? Uh, bad idea, okay? And so I'm standing there with my youth group, and we're all getting ready to go on one of the biggest roller coasters in the park that starts off with a huge climb and a big double loop, okay? I'm going to have to make a decision about whether or not I'm going to get on that roller coaster or not. Two things got me onto that roller coaster, okay? One is there was a girl I was interested in, and she was watching, so I couldn't skip it. Okay? But two, and more importantly... I watched a whole line of people in front of me all ride that ride and all walk away safely. Okay? So after I watch everybody else get on and off that ride and be perfectly fine, then I can have a whole lot of confidence that I can do it too. Right? I went on the roller coaster and it was actually really fun and ever since then I've liked roller coasters. Right? But I did it and I was able to do it because I watched a bunch of other people do it first and knew that they had success with it. That makes sense? And you see where I'm going? Okay, what we tend to do when we have sins that we're struggling with in our lives, uh, we tend to go one of two directions with it. We think either in the first place, well, everybody's guilty of that, so it doesn't really matter, right? I mean, everybody gossips, so it doesn't matter that I gossip, right? And we try to normalize it and make it something that everybody does. Or what we do is the thing that this is really addressing is we think, well, I'm the only one that struggles with this. Right? And if I think I'm the only one that really struggles with this in the church, then I can't tell anybody in church about it. I can't admit to it to anybody else, because if I do, then they'll all look down on me, and I'm the only one that has this problem. Okay? Paul makes it really clear here in verse 13. There is absolutely nothing that you are struggling with right now that is unique to you. I don't care what your struggle is. There is somebody else in this room right now that's struggling with the same thing you are. Okay? And as long as we keep it private, and as long as we think, oh, I'm the only one, then we'll never really deal with it. 
Okay, but if we recognize other Christians have dealt with this, other Christians have already conquered this sin, right? Then we know it's possible, and then we're able to reach out to each other and find help that we need to get through stuff, right? One of the lies that Satan's really good at telling us is that, oh, you got to keep that quiet, right? No one else would understand that. Oh, you can't tell anybody else about that. Oh, you got to keep that to yourself. Or, oh, you can do this all by yourself. You don't need anybody else, right? You're strong enough in yourself. You can just keep this quiet. It'll be okay. It's not how it works. We need to have the confidence that other Christians have already conquered this. Other Christians understand. All right, and number two. Second way Paul tells us we have to handle our temptations, uh, we need to trust in the faithfulness of God. Right? Trust that God wants what's best for me. I need to trust that God loves me, that he will not allow me to inevitably fall. Okay, so, I'm a sinner. Uh, I'm not going to be perfect, but I can have one of two attitudes about that. I can either live my life constantly striving to be more like Jesus, or I can think that somehow by virtue of my baptism and communion, that God is automatically just happy with whatever I do. Okay, where are we at today? All right, again, the point of being a Christian is not to be perfect. The point is to follow the one who is. Are we following Jesus today? All right, at this time in our service, we are going to sing a few verses of an invitation song. During the singing of this song, I will be down front. One of our shepherds will be down front. Uh, this is a time in our service where we as the church want to be here for you. Uh, so if you've never been baptized, if you'd like to know what it means to truly put on Jesus in baptism, we'd love to talk with you about that. Um, if there's anything we can pray about with you, we would love to do that. Again, this is us wanting to serve you. Um, and so during this song, you can come forward and speak to one of us. But before we do that, I'd like to close us with a word of blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace. Let's stand and sing.